So last week I was given the sermon in Isanti, and I gotta admit, it was the first time I think I've ever been booed during a sermon. Now, I totally understand why. I started off the sermon talking about how much I don't like Christmas music, and about half the room was like, huh? And about half the room was like, boo. I'm like, geez, I really hit some, some gears here. <laughs> I really offended some people, I think, and today I'm going to do the same exact thing. Um, how many women in the room, maybe even some men, love Hallmark movies? Yeah. <laughs> okay, I do. This is the perfect time to talk about this then. Um, I'm probably going to offend you a little bit, but... A few years ago, my wife and I were on our way to a friend's house. We were going to have some dinner, watch a movie and stuff. And we get there, and the mom, our friend, is watching a Hallmark movie. And I walk into the living room, and I was like, oh, is this the one where there's a busy businesswoman, and she moves into the small town to get a little bit of a break from work? And then she meets this guy, and he owns a little small business, and they kind of drive each other crazy a little bit. But in the end, they fall in love, and it's just so perfect. And if you don't believe me, I just described every Hallmark movie ever. They're all the same thing, recycled over and over and over. And it's so funny, because every time I talk about it, people are like, yeah, but they're still so good. And I, I know, I get it. Like, they're wholesome, they're good movies, but it's just the same thing, recycled over and over. In fact, if you don't believe me, I have a picture up here that I want to show you. This is a photo collage of all the different Hallmark movies from the last few years. You, does it look like they found a formula, right? You need a man with a green sweater, with dark hair, mostly dark hair, and a woman in a red dress. That is it. And that is what appeals to the, to the demographic that likes Hallmark movies. But I want to take it even further. It's not just the covers. It's actually the movies that have a formula as well. In fact, Psychology Today did a, an article about three years ago talking about not only Hallmark movies, but all the cheesy, like, Chris, or not Christian, uh, Christmas romantic comedies, and they found a formula. Everyone includes nostalgia. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Everyone includes stress-busting plots. But it's not, when I say stress-busting plots, it's not like this super stressful movie. It's like all of these problems can be solved, and when the movie's over, we all feel good about that. <laughs> but here's the last one, number three. Somebody in the movie is being pursued. Whether it's a man or a woman, somebody in the movie is being pursued. Meaning the woman is chasing after the man or the man is chasing after the woman. And in the end, they are going to fall in love. These are the three key points to every, Christ, or every Christmas cheesy movie. Which I find hilarious, but at the same time, at this point I'm done making fun of it, okay? Here's what I find very interesting. We all love nostalgia, we all love the idea of our problems being solved. But here's something that even on a baseline sort of human level, here's something that we need. We crave being pursued. And I think oftentimes we attribute this to women, like the man chasing the woman, they fall in love. That's a great story. Women love that story. But let's be honest, men, although I am not a Hallmark movie kind of guy, I think every single human being has that desire in their life to be pursued. Whether it's on a friendship level or a romantic level, we all crave respect and love, and we want to be chased after. We want to be wanted by other people. And so what Hallmark is doing, and what all these cheesy romantic comedies are doing, is they're not just finding this formula. Really, I think what they're doing is they're, they're tapping into these deep human desires for what we actually crave in life. Now, I want to ask you a question based on the series that we're in. We're talking about Christmas. 
And it's the mess that we make. We're talking about the sins that we commit, which is, well, let's be honest, it's a heavy, heavy topic in the midst of a Christmas season. It's all supposed to be about joy, and yet we want to talk about sin. There is still joy in that, but here, here's the question I want to ask you. When you sin, how does it make you feel about your relationship with God? When you sin, when you disobey God, how do you think your heavenly father views you? Now, here's the problem that I see. As I was studying for this sermon, I was thinking, I think every Christian, every Christian knows how much God loves us. We hear it all the time in our sermons, in our KTIS songs. Like, if we only listen to the, the, new, Christ, the new Christian songs that are on KTIS, we're always going to feel like we are the center of the universe, I feel like, because it's all about God's love, which isn't a bad thing. God's love is crucial. God's love is important. It is a truth about who he is. It's a core doctrine of the Bible. God loves us, but here's a problem. I think theologically, logically, we understand that. Logically, we understand the the theology of the Bible and who God is. We know God loves us. God pursues his people. But here's where I think that there's an actual break. Here's where I think that it doesn't compute with us. And it's in our feelings. Like we know what the pastor is saying. We know what the song is saying. But do we actually believe it deep down in our hearts? That God loves us. That A, he loves us, and B, he actually pursues us. Now, I'm not equating God's love and his pursuing with a Hallmark movie, because honestly, sometimes when it comes to talking about God's love and Hallmark movies, as a man, it makes me feel a little bit weird that a pastor would say, God pursues me and he loves me. Like, God is not my boyfriend. He's not your boyfriend either. I want to make that very clear. God's love goes great, goes way deeper, and it's so much greater than any movie can ever portray. It's so much greater than any person, any human being can ever portray for us. And how do we know this? Because all throughout scripture, there is a thread of God's faithfulness and his love for his people. And then the the big idea in our minds when we hear that is when Jesus came down and he died for us as our sacrifice, which we're going to talk about a little bit today. But last week we began at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter one, at the beginning in the creation story. And there's some stuff in this story that I think that we need to learn today that I think God really wants to speak to us in. And so we're going to stay in the story of Adam and Eve today in the original sin. So if you have your Bibles, you can go to Genesis chapter three. We're going to be in verses seven through 10. We're going to skip the middle and we're going to go to verses 20 and 21. But what I want you to hear in this is God's reaction to the sin of Adam and Eve, God's reaction to them. This is key. So it says this, at that moment of their sin, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So what did they do? They sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. When the cool evening breeze was was blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man. He called out to Adam. He said, where are you? And Adam replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Then the man, Adam, named his wife Eve because she would be the mother of all who live. And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. 
Now, I want to back up and set up the context. If you're not familiar with the story, Adam and Eve were the first human beings, and they're put in the Garden of Eden. Now, the Garden of Eden is this center, this epicenter of humanity. This is where God and humans exist before sin in total, perfect relationship with each other. Now, in, in our current time, there is a divide between us and God because of our sin. But this is before sin. This is where God and human beings can totally live together in perfect harmony. But what happens is Eve gets deceived by Satan. God tells him, don't eat from that tree. You can eat from any tree in the garden. Don't eat from that one. Satan comes in and says, he only told you that because he doesn't want you to be like him. You can be like God if you eat from that tree. And she says, okay, that's what I want. She eats the fruit and she gives it to her husband, Adam. He eats the fruit. All of a sudden, they become aware of their nakedness. And why is that? Because shame and embarrassment is attached to sin. So what do they do? They grab fig leaves and they try to cover themselves up and they hide in the trees. Now, if you're familiar with um, trees and leaves and you're a gardener, you know that putting fig leaves over yourselves is not a great idea. They're very itchy. They're actually known to cause rashes as soon as they touch skin. Um, And that's all I'm going to say about that based on where they had to put them. Um, But it's not a great idea. It's not a great covering. It's not a great option for them. And so what do they do? They, They hide in the trees. They're embarrassed. They're full of shame. And this is honestly, I think, how we feel all the time. When we sin, we are full of shame. We're full of guilt. We get frustrated with ourselves. And in that, this is where the logic breaks, When we hear the pastor saying, God loves you, when we hear the worship song saying about how God is reckless love for us, we hear that and we say, that is true, and yet when I sin, all of a sudden, I can't believe it anymore because my life is full of shame and I'm so frustrated with myself, and if God is so holy and so perfect, I need to be obedient to him because I love him and I want to, but I can't because I'm so full of sin. And so it Adam and Eve, their response is that they're going to cover themselves because they're embarrassed and then they're going to hide. But this is where God's pursuing love shows up for the first time. What does he do? He's walking around the garden. It says in the cool evening breeze, God is walking around the garden and he says, he calls out to Adam and he says, where are you? Now, what do we know about God? Is God all knowing? Is God all powerful? Yeah. If that's true, though, why is he asking Adam where he is? In fact, Psalm 139 says this. He says, this is King David speaking. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all of my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. King David is saying, he's proclaiming to God the glory of God. He's saying, God, you know all things. So if that's true, why is God asking Adam, where is he? And what theologians have concluded is that this is not a question based on physical location. God's not wondering like, oh crap, I I can't find him anymore. What he's asking is, where are you at spiritually? And again, God knows where Adam is spiritually. God knows all things. This is less of a question for God of where are you? And this is more of a question of for Adam, where are you? 
And this is where a God, for the first time, is pursuing his broken, sinful people. That even in Adam and Eve's disobedience, even in their sin, God isn't willing to just let them go. He searches for them. And he says, Adam, where are you? If you've ever had somebody ask you the question of where are you at in your faith? Or maybe are you struggling a little bit? Is your faith strong right now? Or you, you know, are you sleeping well at night? Do you feel like you're right with God right now? This is essentially the question that God is asking Adam. And Adam's response is that he was naked and he was embarrassed and he was full of shame. And so he hid. But this question is key. This question goes back to a deeper theological issue of who we're actually meant to be. There's a rabbi who was concluding that as he studied the language of the ancient Hebrew that it was written in, it was this rabbi, I'm going to butcher his name, Shimon Apostorf. And he said that the, the word used for the phrase, where are you, in this ancient Hebrew language was often the word that was used when they were asking where a light was. That word is ayaka. Ayaka is not just where are you as in where is that thing. It's asking where the light is. And what, we conclude, what he concluded from this was that what are we created in? We are created in the image of God. And we take that thread all the way to the New Testament And Jesus says, let your light shine before others. And this is where the problem gets even deeper when it comes to sin. When we sin, God is essentially asking Adam, and he's asking us, where is your light? Where is the image that I created you in? You were created to give me glory in all that you do. Whether you work, whether you eat, whether you sleep, that's what the book of Colossians says. Do everything to the glory of God. Worship my name. It's not just singing songs, but it's everything that you do. Worship me. Serve me. And yet when they fall into sin, God is revealing to Adam for the first time, this is who you are becoming. Your light is going out. You're not living out your deep purpose of what it means to be a human being, to live out the glory in the image of God. And what God is doing is he's not trying to put Adam down and berate him and belittle him. He's trying to remind Adam of who he was meant to be, who he was created to be, and the state of where he is at now. And I think that this is a question that we need to all ask ourselves when it comes to our own personal sin. When we're struggling and we find ourselves slipping up, whether it's, it's lust or it's pride or it's anger. You know, I just shared last week with Isani, my four-year-old daughter, we were eating breakfast at the table just two weeks ago, and this is so gut-wrenching. But at nighttime, it, you know, if you've ever had toddlers, little kids, it's really hard because <laughs> you just want them to go to sleep. <laughs> you know how tired they are. I just saw a video yesterday of this woman. She was showing a picture of her or a video of her baby, and her baby was literally physically holding her eyes open so she could stay awake. And that's how it feels like as a parent sometimes. It's like, look how tired you are. Just go to bed. <laughs> but Izzy, my four-year-old, she fights it, and she fights it hard sometimes. And there's some times where I have to sit and I have to lay with her for like an hour. And her bedtime is like 7, 7.15, but it's like 8, 8.15, 8.30. And there's been a few times recently where I'm tired. And I have to look at my daughter and I say, Izzy, go to bed. And when I say that, she quickly rolls over and she puts the covers over her. And it's almost like a, she's in trouble. She knows it. Now, as a parent, it's not wrong to be stern with your kids. Sometimes you need to be stern. That's good. That's just good parenting. But... It's not good parenting when it comes from a place of anger. 
Because for me, it's not, I just want my daughter to sleep so she wakes up the next day and she just feels so good and she's, she's nourished. And No, for me, it's like, go to bed or I'm going to lose it. <laughs> That's how it feels. Now, honestly, I, I give myself a little bit of grace here and there. And I say, you know what? You're tired. You're in school. You got a job. You got an eight-month-old. You deserve to be angry a little bit. I tell myself that. Heck, other parents tell me the same thing, and they try to give me grace too. And I know it comes from a good place, but honestly, I'm sick of my own anger. And when I look at my daughter and I say, go to sleep, and I know that it's not from a place of pure motivation, but it's from a place of, of anger and frustration, And then I think of how my heavenly father treats me, and I never hear that from my heavenly father. It just makes me so frustrated. And when when God asks Adam, where is your light? Where's the image of God that you're meant to portray? To me, when I ask myself that question, and I sense that God is asking me that same question, it really brings in the reality and the the gravity of, of where my sin is at and where I'm at spiritually. And it's frustrating, and it's not meant to bring guilt and not meant to bring shame at a sinful level. What it's meant to bring in is this reality that we are sinful. It's meant to bring conviction. I love, I love the idea of conviction in Scripture. I think so often sometimes as Christians, we, we want to talk so much about the love and the grace of God that we think anything opposite of that is just bad. Like when it comes to conviction or guilt, we just think bad. But conviction can be a good thing because it motivates us to be obedient to our Heavenly Father. It motivates us to run back to Jesus instead of just trying harder. It's good now and then to be convicted. And this is the question that God is asking Adam, where are you at spiritually? Where is your light? You were meant to be created to, to glorify me in all that you do. And yet look at you disobeying and eating the fruit that you were not commanded to eat. It's this moment of reality. It's this moment of conviction. And so what do Adam and Eve do? Again, they hide in the trees and they they cover themselves, they cover their nakedness with these fig leaves, which is probably not a great idea, but I want to take it one step further of what God actually does to pursue Adam and Eve. It says, I heard you walking around in the garden. This is Adam talking to God. I heard you walking around in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. And here's what God does. And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. See, in the end of the story, God does exile them from the garden. This garden of Eden was supposed to be this place where God and humans, where they, where they commune and they, they have a relationship perfectly. But because of sin, they can't be there anymore. And so what this is showing us as Christians is that there are still consequences when it comes to our sin. Like when we talk about the loving God, when we talk about God pursuing us, it's not all about God just, oh, we're going to forget about all the sins that you've committed. We're just going to wipe that all away. We're just not even think about that and just focus on love. No, there are still natural consequences. There are still consequences that we have to face in life. Forgiveness is not about forgetting. Forgiveness is about saying, I'm not going to hold this against you, but we do need to take proper steps to make sure that this doesn't happen again. And this is what's happening. God is not berating them. He's not belittling them, but he does pull them out of the garden. But here's what's key. Before they are exiled out of the garden, God gives them a new covering. He trades their fig leaves for these animal skin clothes. And I know Peter is going to be very upset. But I want to take this to a thread that we see in Scripture. 
Before Jesus comes to earth as our sacrifice, what is the Old Testament system for atoning and forgiveness of sins? It's animal sacrifice. What had to happen in order for God to get these animal skins? They weren't just lying in a closet around the Garden of Eden. An animal had to be sacrificed. What God is doing in this moment is he is providing the sacrifice that would give them forgiveness of their sins. Even though they had to be exiled out, which is right, he is stepping in as a God who pursues his people and he provides them with the clothing that they need. Not only is this a symbol of the sacrifice that is to come in Jesus, that God is the one that's going to have to provide it, But God is so good and so gracious to Adam and Eve that he gives them the proper covering. He's saying, you are being exiled out of the garden. You are going out into the wilderness and you're going to have to work the land. You're going to have to live in a place that is cursed with sin now. But I'm going to give you the covering that you need to be able to get through it. What an act of love from a faithful God to an unfaithful people. I don't know about you, but when I read this story and I'm looking at God clothing Adam and Eve, to me, it almost brings me down to my knees, the love that God has for us. And so I want you to hear this again. Do you believe God loves you? Not just on a theological level, not just on a logical level, like I know he did this and he sent Jesus, so yes, obviously he loves me. No, do you personally believe it? Because when you personally believe it, your eyes will be opened to all of the things that God has done along the way in your life that showed that he is not just a God of love. He is a God who pursues his people. And I think one of the biggest barriers to actually believing this is believing that you are worth pursuing in the first place. I think that this is why Hallmark has found this formula of adding in somebody being pursued all the time in their movies. Because what do humans crave? We crave that pursuing, but what do humans have a hard time believing in? That we are worthy of being pursued. This is why we date guys we shouldn't date. This is why we get with women we shouldn't get with. This is why we have trouble when, when we have a father who was maybe out of the house too much, who didn't give us the love that we feel like we needed We crave that even into adulthood. We crave the idea of being pursued even if we don't feel like we're worthy of being pursued. But here's what I want you to hear. When God says to Adam, where are you? Where is your light? He is reminding him of who he was created to be. And just like Adam being created in the image of God, so were you and so was I. That means when you look out at the mountains, at the lakes, at the oceans, and you see their beauty, and God said it was good when he created those. Nothing else in creation, no matter how beautiful it looks, nothing else in creation was called very good like you and me. Nothing else in creation was imprinted, was stamped with the image of God like you and me. Now, what I'm not trying to say is, look how great we are. We should all become narcissists and just, we deserve God's love all the time. That's not what I'm trying to say. What I want you to hear, though, is that you were created differently. You were created with the image of God on you. That doesn't make you perfect. It makes you special. 
You might not be worthy of God's love because of your sin, but you are worthy of God's love because of whose you are. You are created in his image. And that is a beautiful truth that I think that we need to come to believe and to realize. And when we realize that, when we believe it, we start to see all of the different ways that God has worked in our lives to pursue us because he is a faithful God to the unfaithful people. You know, I think of my own life and all of the mistakes that I made. And I was, I was your typical dumb teenager, <laughs> as most of us were. But I've shared my testimony many, many times, but I've made so many mistakes when it comes to drugs and alcohol, when it comes to cheating on homework, and not just like an assignment here and there, but full-on, full-blown cheating all the time. I made a lot, of, a lot of dumb mistakes as a kid. But I look at my teenage years, and I see all the ways where God was coming through my life and pursuing me, and one of the number one ways I believe he was doing that was through the death of my grandma. Because through the death of my grandma, when she died from Alzheimer's and dementia, it brought in a whole new dimension of how I think about life and how I think about God's provision over me. And that was one of the major catalysts to me actually becoming a Christian. I think of my time when I studied abroad in Italy, studying evangelism, where I had to go walk the streets and tell people about Jesus. And I don't know about you, but it's easy for me to do from stage. But when I'm off the stage, I can be a very introverted person. I am a very introverted person. For me to just walk up to somebody and say, hey, do you know about your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? That's a very difficult thing to do. But God put me in situations like that so that I could see his transforming work and power. When I was a high school senior, I went to Israel with my theology teacher, and I was a very, very new Christian at this point, really trying to figure out what does the Bible mean? Does God actually love me? Does, what does this whole idea of sin mean? And I walked to the sites where Jesus walked. I went to the places where Jesus went to. I saw where the miracles happened, and it was like a veil being lifted off my face. Of that this is not just a concept of beliefs that we can believe in as a church. These things actually happen. This was another moment where God was pursuing me. Just last week, I was talking to a man in our church. And I said something last week in, in the sermon about God being the only one true God. And this man has a lot of different religious backgrounds and, and pagan religions. And he believes that all religions really are pointing to the same God. And we have some major, major differences when it comes to who God is and what the Bible says. And he came up to me with some questions after church and we talked through it a little bit, but I had this check in my spirit. And it was this moment where I felt like the Holy Spirit was telling me, don't just tell him all the right answers. Don't just be defensive about your faith, but be patient with this man because I'm pursuing him. And the reason I felt that was because this man, while his beliefs are way different than what we believe here at church, he's been in our church for almost a year, coming every single Sunday. At this point for me, it's less of me working on him every single week to make sure he believes the right things. We'll get there. But God is working on this man's heart. And when you look at him and you see where he's been and you see the religions he's dabbled in, it's like, this guy doesn't deserve the love of God. And God looks at him so differently. He wants this man. And I bet you could look at your own life and see all of the moments in life, whether they were hard moments or huge blessings. And you could say, this is where God worked in my life. 
This is where God showed his pursuing love in me. This is where God covered me like he covered Adam and Eve. I think it's crucial that we look back at the moments that God has given us in life. That if we want to totally understand his pursuing love for us, we need to look back and say, God, where were you? And we can see all the different moments where God was pursuing us. Now, I was up late last night because I was trying to put the finishing touches on the sermon. And I was trying to figure out what to do with the end of it. Because honestly, when we talk about the love of God, it's a really hard thing to make into practical steps. One of the things that Bill and John and I focus on as we preach is that we want to make our sermons as practical as possible because the Bible is it's theological and it's abstract and there's things, there's truths that are, that are kind of hard to, to grasp and to understand. And, and that's good. Part of our faith is in the mind and it's in the heart and it's in the abstract, but a lot of it is in the practical. Like, give me some steps so I can actually apply this to my life. And I was thinking about this. I thought, there are things that we can do to remind ourselves of God's pursuing love. Because his love is so great, we need to remind ourselves every day. So one of the things that I believe that you can do is practice gratitude. I mean, every morning before you get up and go to work, grab a journal and just write down three areas, three things that you have seen God do. And I promise you, you do that every day for a month. You can open up that book and say, wow, God is pursuing me because he loves me. You're going to see that. I think another thing that we can do is we can practice prayer of repentance. I mean, God's love is so great for us. And when he covers us, he gives us mercy and grace. He doesn't turn away from us. He doesn't, he doesn't abandon us. He doesn't belittle us. He doesn't berate us. In fact, his conviction for us, his covering for us should lead us into I want to repent because God is a God of grace and God of mercy. So there's another practical step. But here's where I think it's, here's where I think that we need to go this morning. I think that this is a spiritual problem. For so many of us, this is a spiritual problem. In John chapter 9, Jesus comes into a town and he heals a man that was born blind. And it's this powerful moment where Jesus has authority over nature. He can, he can have a miracle happen. He has authority over our bodies. He can make a blind man see. That's amazing. That's a miracle. But it's also a metaphor. Yes, it happened literally, but it's also a metaphor. That every single one of us, to fully understand the gospel and God's love for us, some of us, we are spiritually blind where we can read about God's love, but for us to understand it and to accept it, it seems like there is a veil over our eyes that we just can't fully grasp onto it. And whether this is our own flesh, our own mind, keeping us from the love of God, or maybe this is the power of Satan over your life right now, I believe this is a spiritual problem for many of us. And so here's what I want to do. There's not a lot of practical steps outside of the fact that many of us just need prayer right now. And so I'm going to close in prayer. The worship team's going to come out after the prayer and and lead us in a song. But I believe some of us need prayer in this moment to fully grasp onto the love of God. So let's do that. Let's pray. God, we come before you and we recognize and we see your unfailing love all throughout Scripture, Lord, starting in the Garden of Eden all the way through Jesus, all the way through your second coming, all the way through our resurrection, 
Lord, there is a thread of your unfailing love towards the unfaithful people. But God, right now, I think some of us, we have a spiritual covering over us that we have a hard time either seeing that or believing that. And so, Lord, I pray the power of the Holy Spirit over every single one of us all. Lord, may your love shine through. May you get through to people today. Maybe you do what I can't do through a sermon. Lord, I can study. I can put all these things together. But, Lord, there is something that I can't do, and I can't save people. I can't get them to open their eyes. And so, God, would you do that work today? If there is somebody struggling right now, understanding that that you pursue them and that you love them, no matter what they've done, no matter how bad they've been, Lord, you still grant forgiveness. You still grant mercy. You still grant love. God, I pray that you would open their eyes, their heart, their soul today. Reveal to them who you are. Lord, it is your very nature. You are love. God, and as I pray that you open the eyes of the people, I pray that you would convict us in all of our areas of sin. God, as we see sin in our lives, I pray that we don't just think that we can just remember that you love us and then forget about it. But Lord, just like Adam, we don't want to hide. We don't want to hide from you, Lord. If you're convicting us in this moment of anger or lust or pride or whatever it is in our lives, I pray that your love and your pursuing love would lead us to repentance. It would lead us to change and obedience to you. But God, every single day I ask that you would continue to open the eyes of our people. Open my eyes to the reality of your love over my life and over everybody's life. God, remind us of who you are. And Lord, as we close in a song today, let us worship you because you love us, because you are the God who pursues us, because you give us what no Hallmark movie could ever fully give us for eternity. God, you love us, you redeem us, and we are yours. It's in your name I pray. Amen.